Recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. Okay, welcome to episode number six of the PR and Law Podcast. I am Cam McMurchie with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. How are you? Not bad, you. I'm looking forward to getting getting underway with episode six. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. And Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroonllp.law. Okay, bit of housekeeping before we get underway. Uh, If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. It's actually quite exciting for Ewan and I to see the the number of subscriptions and the number of downloads continue to increase each week. We're extremely grateful for that. So if you enjoy it, please uh, let somebody else know who you think might be interested. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. We are on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And our account is PR Law Podcast. So you can find us on any of those platforms by just searching for PR Law Podcast. Uh, you can also support us on Patreon. That would also mean a lot. You can find that on our website. You can go to prlawpodcast.com and click support the show. And we would also love to take your questions as well. You can ask us those questions on social media and tag it with hashtag PRLawPod. And one other thing that's new this week, Ewan, is we are on YouTube finally. Uh, So that's a key way that I know some people like to listen to shows, and it also sort of helps us uh, get the word out on some different platforms. So uh, we are on YouTube uh, if you prefer to listen to the show that way. Ewan, what is going on? Well, it's uh, Victoria Day long weekend here in in Canada. Very exciting. So, uh, you know, we get an extra day off tomorrow. Uh, it's, It's kind of a beautiful sunny day here, which is always nice. The economy uh, is starting to slowly reopen here in the province of Ontario. So as of uh, Tuesday, um, a number of businesses can kind of get back to normal. So all construction can resume. We've got retail stores um, that aren't located in shopping malls. They get to open up. We get a bunch of uh, outdoor recreational and seasonal activities. That kind of stuff gets to open up. So really kind of exciting uh, much, much overdue, <laughs> or at least it feels like it. Um, and of course, you know, everybody's sort of trying to balance that, you know, that line between, is it safe for us to do this? Um, is it not safe? And, and frankly, again, I got to sort of tip my hat to the government. They've been doing a pretty good job around this stuff. And, and it looks like we're doing it slowly, slowly, but surely, um, baby steps, but even the little baby steps are kind of exciting right now. Yeah, and actually, uh, it's a little different now on this side of the world. So let's check that out. All right. So um, just, you know, kind of an update off the top. It's good to go through the numbers quickly. We're now at 4.6 million cases worldwide. uh, And over 300,000 people have died of this. And I think the U.S. continues to be uh, the biggest trouble spot. And uh, it's up to almost 1.5 million cases uh, and almost 90,000 people have passed away from COVID-19 in the U.S. And that's remarkable to me because in China, uh, they're only officially at 4,633 deaths. Now, we know there's probably more than that. Uh, I don't, you know, basically anytime China releases numbers of any kind, uh, we're skeptical. Uh, but regardless, it's still still much smaller. 
Uh, but it got interesting in Hong Kong this week because, you know, we had gone 23 straight days without any new sort of case that, that, that was contracted inside Hong Kong. And that ended uh, about midweek uh, when there were three new cases all in the same family. It looked like uh, the, the older person in the family, it was a grandmother, uh, had contracted COVID-19 and spread it to two relatives. Uh, and all of them are now in hospital. And there's no no way to know how she contracted the disease because she had not traveled. Uh, and um, there was no record of you know, her even coming into contact with other people who had had COVID-19. So that's a bit of a mystery. Uh, and then we had three more arrive from uh, Pakistan, uh, which has happened periodically sort of throughout this time. And, and they're also under, under uh, quarantine. But I think the interesting thing is we had the health minister in, in Hong Kong come out uh, just today, actually, and say that this is going to be a new normal, that this, you know, there's probably not going to be a time when this is just eradicated, when it's just gone and we don't have to think about it anymore. Um, you know, we went a long time without any cases and boom, you know, right away, there's three new ones. And who knows, you know, of the people that they came in contact with who might develop symptoms much later. And maybe they've also spread it since that we don't know. So it's... Um, this is kind of frustrating because I think people want to see an end to this. They want to go back to normal, but it, it could linger around for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, Cam, what's the state of the travel restrictions there now in terms of who can come in and out of the country? So we have um, we have flights coming in and out of Hong Kong still, um, but on arrival, it's a mandatory 14 day quarantine no matter where you come from. And uh, you're also given a bracelet so you can be tracked to make sure that you're, you're in quarantine. I think a lot of the time they're taking people to the uh, a convention center here, uh, which has been sort of repurposed for, for people who, who suspected or suspected cases of COVID-19. Um, but there's a word now that uh, parts of Asia may come in, into a, uh, a travel bubble. So because Hong Kong has had no new cases for so long, uh, plus Macau and plus mainland China uh, having a good record and Korea. There's talk of opening up the travel between those areas. And as countries sort of come online and seem to have dealt with it, add countries to that bubble over time, which is quite interesting uh, as a plan. Um, but, but already, you know, there are people saying, you know, especially between mainland China and Hong Kong, that maybe that can be relaxed a bit because both, both, both sides of that border have it relatively under control. Oh, well, that's cool. I mean, you're, you're literally creating a sort of a COVID free Asia community. <laughs> People can travel and travel amongst, at least they can get out of their country and maybe go somewhere, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, it's, it's a big step forward, but I mean, when will travel come back, you know, to the way it was before when you can just book a flight, go to the airport, you know, get on a plane and go somewhere that, that still could be a long time. Um, I, I don't know when that's going to happen. And, you know, Taking a look at what's happening in the United States, they're nowhere, nowhere near ready. And I, I, I can't see, um, you know, Hong Kong or China or other countries opening up too much to the U.S. as long as the numbers continue to spike. Yeah, well, I mean, we just saw earlier this week um, Air Canada's announcement that they're laying off thousands and thousands of workers, which, you know, is to be expected given, um, I mean, given their inability to, to get planes anywhere. I mean, one thing that I thought was un unprecedented, I got a, a push notification from, from Air Canada asking me if I wanted to purchase a bunch of air miles with a you know crazy bonus miles attached for sort of every dollar spent. And I don't know if I can recall a time ever where Air Canada um, has offered up air miles to buy. So clearly they're trying to raise some cash by any means possible to sort of um, keep keep the operation afloat. 
Yeah, airlines uh, are obviously in big trouble. I think people know that. I I just saw just uh, this evening that Emirates is going to retire something like 40 of their A380s. And I mean, A380s are relatively new aircraft. They're not... uh, they're not old at all. And to see so many of them sort of um, taken out of service is, is really, really a big deal. And it's also a sign that Emirates doesn't expect travel to pick up to the way it used to be. And I, and I think that's probably true. I mean, one side effect of all of this working from home and, and doing video conferencing and stuff is people have found out that actually you can do a lot of things from home uh, or from a distance. And so that could impact the travel market too. Yeah, well, and it's also, I think, going to uh, impact the rental market from a commercial rent perspective, because a lot of businesses are sort of raising and, and recognizing the same thing, right? Do I really need to spend this kind of rent every month for, for a huge office when I could have, you know, 30% of my staff working from home? If I can have 30, 40% of my staff working from home, that means we need a smaller bricks and mortar operation, which significantly costs, cuts costs and, and reduces overhead. Um, you know, I think a lot of businesses are going to really transform the way that they operate when, you know, again, we get back to some semblance of normal if and when that ever happens, right? Yeah. And I know back there, I mean, in Canada, in the US and other countries, they've sort of looked at China or Hong Kong or Korea um, to see, you know, a few months into the future, what's it going to be like? And if, if you know, our experience is any indication, um, you could have weeks and weeks of good news where, you know, you feel fine and you think it's the worst is over, but it just takes one person. It just takes one person coming into contact with multiple people for having a, a relatively large outbreak because this thing spreads very easily. And I think about this with the sports teams that talk about coming back. I know the NBA and the NHL want to come back because um, they're missing out on, I mean, literally in the NBA's case, billion, at least a billion dollars still to go for the NBA playoffs. Um, and, but, you know, a player just ends up taking a taxi with somebody or, you know, uh, coming across somebody at a buffet or something like that. And, and it can spread again and we have to shut everything down again. So I think the timing on this is going to be uh, a very, very difficult. Yeah. I mean, I saw that the, the Bundesliga, the, uh, the German premier football league has, uh, has resumed play. I think there will probably be a lot of other professional leagues around the world who will be monitoring, um, you know, their status to see how things proceed to sort of inform, when they open, how they open, and 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 how the operation's gonna gonna look going forward. Yeah, in the Bundesliga case, those teams are all within Germany. And uh that has come up as an issue because the complexity comes in when you're crossing borders. Um because countries and jurisdictions, you know, often have very different different rules around this. Um and so that's one one sort of benefit that I think the Bundesliga um has in their case. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, okay. Anything else you want to add on COVID, Ewan? Um, yeah. I mean, I, again, I just wanted to talk about these job numbers. I mean, I, I know we talk about this every week, but you know, it, it always, each week when I look at the numbers, it just, it's always jaw dropping and, and, you know, they're starting to come down in the U S now, but still there was another 3 million Americans that filed for front employment benefits last week, which brings the, the total now to 36 and a half million since mid-March. Um, you know, and, and that number, as I understand, exceeded the economists' expectations by about half a million. Um, and that total puts the unemployment rate in the US around 15%. You know, and then of course, it, it, the United States is a huge country, much like Canada, and different jurisdictions have been hit harder than others. I mean, I was 
I was looking at a story talking about Kentucky, which I understand has been hit hardest among among the states, and their unemployment rate is like 36% of the labor force has filed for unemployment benefits. And I'm just trying to imagine that. I'm trying to imagine 36% of the labor market effectively disappearing in the span of, you know, nine weeks. It's, I mean, it's just truly an astounding statistic. Yeah. I heard Bernie Sanders talk about this weeks ago. Uh, you know, that when there is unemployment that starts reaching those levels, you do start worrying about security and safety and, um, you know, societal breakdown to some degree. And that sounds sort of apocalyptic and maybe far-fetched, but, but, but it, 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 it can happen. Um, when you get into the thirties, I mean, people need to eat, they need to, um, you know, feel satisfied with what they're doing every day. Um, and it can start to start to weigh on them when there's this, this unemployment this high. Yeah. I mean, again, I think the only and silver lining, I suppose is the wrong term, but, um, really the only sort of positive that you can see in these numbers. And, you know, we talked about this last week is that hopefully most of these jobs will come back that that these these layoffs are temporary and that a, a large percentage of these individuals will get back to work or at least that's you know that's the hope and 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 at this point you know we've got to keep some sense some sense of hope right yeah i think you've probably got more than i do i um when it, when it started when this all started i thought okay we'll shut things down for a couple of weeks or a month and then we'll get back to normal and it's going to be a blip and the longer that it's gone on the more I'm thinking we may never see all those jobs come back ever. Um, there may be changes to the labor force and changes to companies that are permanent as a result of this. And uh, I, I become less optimistic day by day that, that it will all come back. I think, you know, maybe in, in a very long time horizon, we could see a lot of jobs come back, but they'll be different and they'll be in different areas and doing different things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, after 2008, 2009, the financial crisis, we saw a lot of businesses really get lean and mean, right? They they trimmed a lot of fat. And I, I see no reason um, to see why this won't be any different. And and again, I think there's been there's been a bit of a, a cultural shift that's occurred here, as you know, as we were talking about in terms of the working from home phenomenon. I think a lot of businesses will see this as an opportunity to trim more fat to cut rental overhead and other expenses by by having staff work from home going forward. And that sort of leads to the next question of, well, if we've got more people working from home, can we have fewer people working from home? Can we eliminate a lot of those, you know, uh, entry level positions to try and, and trim the fat? Because a lot of companies, when they do get back to some semblance of normal, they're going to need to to raise capital. They're going to need to um, you know, have some cash flow because I suspect cash flow for a lot of businesses that are that are still in business that is um, is is truly precarious right now, and they're going to look to trim fat. and And as we saw in two thousand and eight, two thousand nine, when those jobs get cut and those positions get eliminated, rarely do they come back. Um, you know, businesses learn from these sorts of from pandemics or 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 economic. Uh, trials and tribulations in these positions, once they're gone, rarely, rarely do they come back. All right. We have a lot to get to on this show, so we will catch you on the other side. 
Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, you dog, what's going on? What's happening in the legal world? Well, you know, I, I want to talk about something pretty basic this week, Cam. It's it's perhaps not the uh, not the sexiest of topics, particularly given all the sort of interesting legal stories we've had over the past few weeks related to COVID-19. But, um, you know, this is a point that anybody can relate to. If you're an employer, if you're an employee, regardless of where you live, regardless of the, you know, the the jurisdiction that you live in, the the legislation that you're you're adhering to it applies to everybody and that's that if you didn't put it in writing it never happened okay now i would think that this is sort of obvious um to a lot of people but every week i'm contacted by employees or employers who are telling me about circumstances that they've had with either their employee or their employer where they didn't they didn't take the contents of whatever conversation they had and reduce it to writing. And if you haven't done that, then you've effectively left yourself in a very, very precarious position from a legal perspective. And, you know, again, like I really, I can't sort of emphasize this point enough. It seems really, really basic in particularly in this sort of day and age, uh, you know, we've got all kinds of technology at our fingertips, email, text messages, smartphone recording apps. There's really no excuse to reduce a conversation that you've had with your boss to writing. So if you go to your boss, for example, and you say, you know, hey, we were talking about um, my bonus and I understand it's discretionary, but it's, you know, it's going to be paid out at the end of the month. What's the state of that? And your boss says, oh, well, hey, you and you know, we had a great year financially and you know, I think you're going to be really, really pleased come come bonus time where we're going to be putting a, a good chunk of change in your back pocket. And you leave that meeting thinking, well, hey, fantastic. That's great. And then what happens come bonus time? You don't receive a bonus and you want to rely on that conversation that you had with your employer, but you didn't put it in writing. You didn't write it down. So, you know, just some really, really, really basic, basic stuff here. And this applies if you're talking about, you know, disciplinary action, a dispute maybe you had with your employer, compensation discussions, all of it. You know, after you have a conversation like that, if you're an employee, you have a conversation like that with your boss, go back to your office and just send a quick email. Really, really, really simple. Reduce it to writing and say, hey, Cam, great, great conversation. Thanks so much for, for clarifying where I'm at with regard to my bonus. You know, I look forward to to getting something consistent with 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 what we discussed you reduce it to writing and then that way after the fact if the employer tries to say well hey you know um we never talked about this i never guaranteed anything you at least have something that you can refer to in writing something that you can rely on should you wish to dispute the employer's position okay when um when you mentioned make sure it's written down um you're right. I think that seems simple. It seems straightforward, but I can see why people wouldn't do it because it's not a habit. Uh, you know, when we talk to relatives or we talk to 
our friends or we, you know, are, let's say planning a, you know, rec baseball league and we're getting commitments from people. We just use their words as the, the bond or the contract. And, um, I know that's not good, but when you say write it down, I mean, how, how often should that be and what form should that take? Uh, like, I understand your example with, with the, with the bonus and emailing your boss and having your boss, you know, reaffirm that. And then you've got evidence, but is there value in just writing things down yourself when it happens? Um, even if it's just your own notes, because I think it's more difficult to get someone else to put it in writing on your behalf or for your, for your benefit. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It is, you know, if, if you're not, if you're not going to follow up with email or, you know, you're uncomfortable doing so, or it's sort of, you know, a, a situation where it would just, it would just sort of be perceived as kind of bizarre or, or inappropriate. I mean, draft a, draft a word document, you know, like often clients of mine, employers and employees and like, they, they want to rely on hand scribbled notes after the fact, recounting events. Yet the problem with that is there's no way to prove those handwritten notes were actually drafted on the day of the event. I mean, the great thing about a Word document or some other electronic form is that when you save it electronically, or perhaps you send an email to yourself, which is also a good idea, the note is time and date stamped, right? So you may have difficulty after the fact proving your account of events, but at least you won't have to prove when the document was created. And that's still a heck of a lot better than not having anything at all. See, if one of my staff, and I I do have a team where I work, if one of them emailed me something like that and said, thank you for the discussion on on bonuses. Uh, Thank you for saying that I would have a healthy bonus, right? Or something like that. My, my, spider senses would immediately start tingling going, what is this person angling for? What are they doing? This is not natural behavior. They clearly want something written out. And I would immediately think that, and then I would probably not do it. Uh, not even because it's trying to hide something, but then if, if, if the other person is thinking this way, then I also have to think this way. Um, because I don't know what the end of the year might bring. And while I intend on bonuses now, I might not by the end of the year, depending on what happens, such as COVID-19. Uh, so, I mean, how do you recommend people go about it without sounding like they don't trust you or sounding like they've got some other, something else on the go and they, it's basically based around trust. I mean, they don't trust you. I mean, how do you deal with that? Well, again, this, is, this isn't about employees trying to, pull a fast one or instructing or advising employees to try to pull a fast one. I mean, employers and employees alike have a have a duty to act in good faith, right? So, I mean, you can't try and and pull a fast one with your employer and say, oh yeah, hey, remember when we had this conversation about X, Y, and Z and you said A, B, and C and you put it in writing and say, ha I've got an email in writing. I mean, the, um, the employer and the employee have to come to the table with clean hands. I mean, they have, they have to act in good faith about this. Now, does that mean that they always do? Well, of course not. But again, all the more reason to try and reduce your position in writing. Now, in the example that you, you brought up, Cam, that is sort of an interesting example because often I'll, I'll advise employees, you know, draft an email. If this was the contents of the conversation, draft an email to your boss setting out what was discussed, what was promised, and and what occurred regardless of, of the circumstances of the discussion. Now, if their boss doesn't write back, that can be problematic for the employer. 
Because if after the fact, and and frankly, employers generally are, are unlikely to sort of deny a conversation at the time. It's usually it's only later when the employment relationship has soured, um, you know, that they'll typically go back and try and deny that that it ever happened. So, you know, if you do get an email like that from an employee, then yes, it would be wise. And I understand you're you're very busy. You got a lot of stuff on your plate, but you know, just send a, send a very quick email, something to the effect of, well, look, you know, that wasn't exactly the contents of the conversation. You know, why don't we, you know, we're gonna have to sit down and, and have another chat about this. You know, what's your, what's your availability next week or something like that. Something to just clarify that, well, wait a minute, my account of that conversation seems to be a little bit different than your account of that conversation. So no, I'm not just going to blindly agree, um, to, to your account of events. The important thing is that somewhere, Somewhere, somehow, it's written down. So just make a note and move on, right? I mean, it, the thing is, is, in employment relationships, they're not unlike marriages. Nobody gets married operating under the assumption that they're going to get divorced. But of course, we know divorce lawyers <laughs> exist, prenuptial agreements exist for a reason, because people very often end up getting divorced. You know, the employment relationship is sort of the same thing. Nobody accepts a job expecting to get fired, but it happens all the time. So do what you can when you can to protect yourself, whether you're the employer or the employee. And the best way to do that is to clarify your position in writing. You know, I, I'm, I don't want to be the devil's advocate here um, because I understand what you're saying, which obviously makes perfect sense. Um, you know, from a legal perspective, especially if there's a, if there's a dispute, but I guess coming at it from a different angle, um, if, if my staff did write me something like that, I would think right away that they didn't really trust me, first of all. Um, and so right away on, to some degree that tarnishes the relationship a little bit right off the top, even though it's perfectly normal. I mean, it's the same in marriages too, <laughs> because I mean, you, you, if you ask your wife for something or you're dealing with a, a you know, a financial concern of the, the belongs to you and your wife, you're not really going to ask her to start writing down her side or her part of the agreement. Normally you, you would think you could trust each other, I assume. Um, and so I, I guess, and this may be a kind of a PR side in a way too, because there's sort of reputational risks to some of this. And if I did have an employee that said that I wouldn't be upset with them, but I would think, oh, so this is the nature of our relationship. It's going to be written down formally in emails when we have discussions. And then immediately I would be much more careful in dealing with that person. And I probably wouldn't consider them part of an inner circle either um, because of that, that sort of behavior. And, and yet I understand that sort of behavior, but it's, it's also human nature to end up thinking, okay, if somebody doesn't trust me or somebody wants to have these extra checks on what I'm saying, uh, that I also need to be careful with them. And I think maybe that does affect a lot of people who sort of you're asking to do this because it's not easy, um, to, to try and get your boss to pin, pin down something in an email like that without some kind of consequence. Yeah, look, and I and I wouldn't disagree with you. And and I'm not don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to encourage sort of a bizarre workplace culture where every single in-person discussion is subsequently reduced to writing. I mean, it's not practical and from from your perspective, reputationally it can cause harm. Nobody's going nobody wants to work with an employee who does something like this. I'm talking about sort of big big issues 
more significant issues if there are something promised like you know a, a bonus or a salary increase or um you know a modification of the employment terms these sorts of things these are the sorts of things that need to be reduced to writing to protect the employer and to protect the employee you know if it's sort of smaller issues or you know perhaps a situation where you know you have an employee who's being harassed by the employer you know the employee's not going to want to send an email to the employer every time he or she is, is is sort of subject to some incident of harassment in those circumstances again good notes can be very very valuable and helpful so if you came from a meeting with your boss and your boss had been harassing you go back to your desk and document it but don't document it by hand and this is the thing you know often clients will come to me with handwritten notes and you know they're still i i suppose better than nothing but there's no way to prove that that individual didn't just write all those handwritten notes right then and there before walking into my office you know if you have something that's time stamped and date stamped then you can establish a clear a clear chronology of events and that can be really really powerful um for the purposes of of a legal argument that you're trying to put forth so i would encourage people just create your own notes save them, put them in a folder, and then you have that document if and when you need it. It's not that you necessarily are going to have to, but if you do need to, then you have something to protect yourself after the fact. I mean, you know me well, Ewan. I automatically assume the worst. And I think this is, I don't think a lot of people are like this, actually, the more I talk to other people. But, you know, if somebody says to me in a verbal way that I will get a bonus or this will happen, I, my assumption is it won't. And that's, I think, I don't know if that's some sort of, there's a psychological reason for that that goes back to my childhood or something. But I mean, I just assume nothing will happen until it does. I approach almost everything that way. Um, And I I think there probably have been times where I wasn't given something that was promised, but I probably don't even notice because I just never assumed that it would anyway. Um, I I think this is kind of a useful way for people to to work, but it's also not very realistic to to approach things um, that way. The one thing that I do, though, any praise or any big thank yous or any, you know, really positive remarks that come from senior executives or colleagues, I will save those. And I keep those on the off chance that there is some issue sometime down the line with my performance or they, or if there's some issue they say they have with my performance, I definitely want to have evidence to back up my case there. And I've done this for years. I've never needed to ever use it, but I do, I I just do it sort of automatically. And I think that might be able to help people as well. uh, Just doing that when they get that kind of feedback. Yeah. Well, and, and you raise a good issue about the, you know, performance, right? I mean, it's not just about good performance, you know, feedback from your employer about good performance. It's, it's equally as important when you get negative feedback from your employer. If your employer, for example, drafts an email to you and says, Hey, you didn't do this or, you know, puts you on some sort of, you know, performance improvement plan as, as, as are quite common here in Ontario, where the employer sits down and drafts a formal document and effectively states, you know, if you don't hit these check marks by such and such a date, um, you know, we're going to have to let you go because your performance has been, has been problematic over the last few months. Even then, you know, you don't just have to accept that carte blanche as an employee. You should draft a response. I mean, you should set out your position because there's always two sides of a story and you never really know what the employer's impetus is for, for putting an employee on a performance improvement plan or, or putting something in writing addressing their performance. So, you know, again, 
from the employee's perspective, until you've reduced your position in writing after the fact, if you don't have that, then you you don't really have any way of sort of supporting your argument or your position or questioning the employer's position. So even in those circumstances, it's important to sort of follow up with something in writing. But, you know, what, one other quick point I wanted to I wanted to address, you know, we're talking about taking notes and, you know, if you find yourself in a precarious position with your employer or if you're the employer and you're finding yourself in a precarious position with the employee, because really, I mean, this 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 cuts both ways put something in an electronic document that's date and time stamped, keep in mind that, you know, you have those notes. So, I mean, the good and bad that's reflected in those notes, it's, it's both, it can be relied on after the fact, right? So you also have to be conscious of, well, I'm documenting this. Is this going to be a good thing or could this come back to, to, to bite me as well? So you've got to be, you've got to be conscious of that. But generally speaking, you want to have something that you can rely on after the fact. The last thing you want to do is say, well, but so-and-so told me in a meeting or no, 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 that never happened. Or, you know, my recollection is this. Well, I mean, what's, you know, what's your recollection? What do we have to base your recollection on other than your word right, right here and now, right? We need something that's better than that. I really do find this fascinating because, you know, I, I don't want to go into too many of sort of my own personal experiences just with me or with, with staff who've worked under me, but, um, you know, I have been in a situation where people under me have been given a uh, an improvement plan, and it's usually a two month sort of plan, with with some clear deliverables to to sort of basically show that they are capable in the role that they're in. And um, usually that's done through HR, and it's usually a discussion with the employee. Um, and the employee at that time can obviously raise their their concerns, but again, that's verbal. But I guess if 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 we sent the plan to the employee, following all of that as the final, here's the plan, and the employee came back and uh, listed a bunch of things, I see how in a legal way that's a very smart thing to do. In an employer, from the employer's perspective, it almost looks like assuming that the the improvement plan was necessary and there were legitimate issues with that employee's performance it would seem almost to be um dismissive of the concerns or challenging to the company that we were wrong and i think that would do a lot more damage to the relationship uh than had the employee sort of taken the the advice and sort of worked hard to try and to try and to try and uh, sort of regain that position. Um, so I, 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 feel, I do feel like it's sort of case by case. It really depends what your relationship is with the employer, how long you've been there, like how well you know them, all of these sorts of things. But I guess if it comes down to an ultimate dispute, what you're saying is absolutely right. You need to have this information. You need to have these records. You're not wrong. I mean, all of these situations have to be evaluated on a case by case basis. And again, you know, one thing I always say to employer clients and employee clients is you have to look at things through two different lenses. One, you have the legal lens. You know, what am I entitled to do legally? What is the best course of action legally? And then on the other hand, to your point, you have what's the best course of action practically? What am I entitled to do practically? Because the reality is, is that regardless of what the problem is, regardless of how you decide to to resolve or address that issue, more often than not, the employer and the employee, they're going to continue to work together going forward. They're going to continue to share our workspace. And the last thing you want to do is to create an environment where 
neither party is particularly interested in engaging with the other. That's bad for business. It's bad for the relationship. It's bad for the workplace culture. So, so yeah, I mean, to your point, you've got to, you've got to think these things through regardless of whether you're the employer or the employee in terms of what the best course of action actually is. And again, putting my PR hat on, I was thinking if, 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 if my employer verbally talked about a bonus for this year that was you know much larger, I, maybe I would email back, like based on your advice, I would email them back, but I may couch it in a different kind of email, like an email that maybe focuses on something else or something else is the justification for that email that also mentions the bonus, but isn't the core of the email, because that would be one way to make it, to mask it a little bit, but still get that, um, that approval, uh, without being too overt or too explicit. Well, again, you know, we talked about that duty of good faith, right? So, you know, you can't, you can't sort of try and again, try and pull a fast one on an employer. And if if something, if something like that happened and I was sort of repping the employer, I'd probably say, well, look, I mean, clearly the substance of this email had nothing to do with a conversation um, about, about a potential bonus. It was sort of a throwaway statement at the end of the email. Um, no, 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 really, this is sort of, this isn't something that we can really rely on. If, if we're in the conversation, for instance, and we're talking about sort of the future of the department or some other, some other question, email could say, Hey, dear boss, nice speaking to you now, just speaking to you just now about the plans for the future. And yes, I agree. This person will be better in this role and this will be better over here. And thanks for your feedback on this. And, you know, appreciate also the consideration for the bonus at the end of the year of this much. Thanks so much. And recapping well, it that way, not pulling a fast one, but not making the whole email the point of that number or that bonus, which seems a little more aggressive. Well, Cam, I think you've, you've sort of just stumbled onto the reason why we have this podcast, which is because there's a lot of overlap in the kind of work that you do and the positions you take in writing and the kind of work that I do and the positions I take in writing. Um, yeah, I mean, look, we could go back and forth on on different sort of hypothetical scenarios the reality is, is that it, it's always it always comes down to a case by case basis, right? What what was the actual contents of the email? What was the intention? What's the chronology? Are we talking about an isolated incident? Was there only one discussion? Were there several? Was there only one email? Were there several? Um, you know, everything is sort of evaluated on a on a case by case basis. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not trying to rain on your parade because what you're giving is very good advice to people. Uh, but, you know, it is interesting, Ewan, because especially, you know, in roles I've had in the past, there are obviously clashes with with PR, but not or sorry, with 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 our usually in-house legal teams or, or even external at times uh, around these issues. You're right, because um, your advice is very good. But then on the PR angle, it's like, do you want to appear as like a, a careful slash untrusting slash litigious employee? No. So how do you then go about getting the um, the confirmations that you need? without appearing that way. And I guess um, that's where the challenge really comes in because we're constantly thinking of how something will look. Even if it's justified, uh, it may not look good to the receiver. Um, that's just sort of how it works. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a perennial challenge. No, no doubt. Yeah. And I, and, and look, I mean, lawyers have a great way of, of complicating things unnecessarily. So, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not suggesting that employees or employers sort of draft these, these emails with a bunch of legalese or dressed up in such a, in such a fashion that it it clearly would reflect that it was, it was drafted with, you know, in correspondence with a lawyer or 
perhaps by a lawyer. Um, you know, I, I do think plain, simple language in these circumstances is always or almost always best. Um, and, you know, that the lawyers sort of remain on the sidelines until it's necessary to, to actually get them involved. Yeah. Once the lawyer's involved, things have deteriorated quite a lot by then. <laughs> well, sadly, yes, that, that that's often the case. But I do think it's a fascinating subject. You and I have talked about this a lot, right? I mean, I know um, for you, as I'm, as I'm sure, you want to draft a press release, but you know that whatever it is that you're drafting ultimately has to be vetted by legal and that legal is going to look at it through that particular lens. And often you're going to get that press release. It's going to come back to you completely scratched up and, you know, um, basically a completely different document than the one that you, you initially sent to them. And yeah, I mean, finding that, that balance, I I imagine, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm thankful I don't have to, I don't have to do what you do, but I imagine it's remarkably difficult to, to strike that balance between have we hit the requisite legal thresholds to protect ourselves as a business in this press release versus, well, are we just going to completely freak the public out now? Um, because we've said, well, this, but unless this happens, then this, I mean, nobody likes to read those sorts of press releases. Um, it's, it's bad for business and it's ultimately bad for the legal department, I suspect as well. Well, I mean, the, the whole purpose of a press release is to put out an announcement and make it compelling enough that it will get picked up by newspapers or, or portals or TV or radio or whatever. So it has to be written in a way that's exciting, that's interesting, you know, that gets to the point fairly quickly. And you're right, something gets circulated and, and legal changes it all around. Um, and then it's no longer something that is compelling to read. And I think different companies place different emphasis on this. Like I have worked in firms where legal and communications have basically been equal when it comes to something like a press release. Other times legal has had the outright say and um, in one position, communications usually was able to to take the lead in the area of press releases only. Um, And I think, I think it's hard because, um, you know, striking that balance is very difficult and um, you know, coming up with the wording that satisfies legal, but also covers off, communications is is basically impossible and so someone needs to make the decision because you're right at one on one side there is legal liability you may say something that makes that opens you up to some kind of liability legally and there's a cost for that however there's also a cost to something in there that does scare the audience like you said or um, something that could put the company in a bad light so there's a reputational cost there and, you know, which one is the one we don't want to pay? Which one is the one that's more important for us to consider? Um, and I think companies that really sort of take a look at, at it that way come out much better because they can say, okay, the likelihood of some sort of legal action based on this is small or, um, you know, smaller than the reputational hit that we could take, you know, by doing it another way. And um, that's one way to do it. But there's never, ever a way to sort of reconcile these things between the two departments. And I think I think you're right. This is an issue that we talk about a lot and I think could go into sort of more detail, maybe in future shows, looking at like real situations of where this happens and and how to try and get around it. Yeah, well, but I I think in your particular case, Cam, there's one very, very easy solution here, and that's that you need to go to law school. <laughs> I think I, uh, I missed that boat. 
It's, well, uh, and, you know, then you, you don't have to have anything vetted by anyone. You can, you can, uh, you know, you can wear both hats. Well, I mean, obviously that would be problematic for a whole other slew of reasons. Um, but, it, you know, at least you wouldn't have to necessarily defer to the, uh, to the, to the legal interest the way that um, you're probably often um, compelled to do now. I just worry if I went to law school, my writing would get much worse. But anyway, <laughs> it probably would. It probably would. Let's carry on to the PR. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. All right, we've got two things to talk about today, Ewan, and one of them you sent me this week, and I watched it on Twitter, and I was, I was surprised. Um, and it's about um, the animosity, the anger, the vitriol directed at journalists in the United States in this era of President Trump. And you had sent me a tweet, uh, which was video taken by a New York. Uh, a New York reporter and videographer, it looks like, uh, who went into this um, sort of open the economy, anti-COVID kind of um, protest that was happening on the side of a highway. And I'm actually going to play the audio from this. I think it's pretty astounding. Uh, bear with me as you go through it. It's about a minute long. Um, and it's basically this guy holding his camera and you're seeing uh, an image um on the video of just him walking around and pointing his camera at different people and seeing what they have to say. And it's not scripted in any way, even though it does kind of sound that way. Um, but here's, here's the audio. I'm just trying to get by on the sidewalk. That's all. Well, you shouldn't be here. You're fake news. You stopped, you stopped airing the Trump briefings and you keep airing Cuomo briefings. Go home. Fake news. Fake news. You're destroying. You are the enemy of the people. We know about your liberal agenda. We know you want to keep your job. We get it. You're not getting advertising dollars right now. You're not going to answer. So you're just going to go live. I'm very happy. But other people are not getting paychecks. That's why we're here. You used to be a good channel at one time. I don't know what happened to you. You let so much crap fly on your Facebook page, it's disgusting. You're disgusting. You're the virus. There we go. Yeah, I mean, when I initially saw this clip, Cam, I, I mean, you know, the the audio 
tells most of the story and, and to sort of paint a clear picture. And I, and I guess we can, we can post the video in the show notes, but we're talking about a number of protesters carrying placards. Um, there were children. I mean, the, the, the image of the, the child chanting fake news, fake news was arguably the most disturbing thing about the whole, the whole video. But when I initially watched it, my, my, my first reaction was, well, this is sort of reminiscent of something that I would, I would read in a science fiction novel or, or walk and watch in some sort of post-apocalyptic film such that, you know, when you watch these sort of films or you read those sorts of books, you're thinking, yeah, okay, I get it. You're laying it on a little thick. It's, it's so over the top and so sensationalist and so inflammatory. Like this would just never happen in real life. And when I saw that video, I thought, well, Hey, Clearly, I was wrong because uh, clearly, clearly this can happen. But, uh, you know, the thing, the other point was just the irony of the whole video. I mean, as you can tell, the reporter doesn't he he says virtually nothing over the entirety of 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 the clip. And the reason I found this so remarkably ironic is that you have all these individuals that are sort of screaming fake news, fake news, fake news. And yet this is a real reporter documenting real people at a real protest in a real street in the United States, everything about it was real. And yet they keep chanting fake news, fake news, fake news. I just found the whole dynamic truly fascinating. I bring this up in the PR section, um, not because we're going to have any solutions here, but because the news media does have a PR problem as this uh, clip so so vividly uh, describes um and i think you know i have seen at trump rallies in the past and even going back to to 2016 you know when he was when he was running for president there was a lot of anger directed at the press even back then and i i remember you know cnn reporters talking about how you know trump would call them out and the crowd would turn around and look at them and start chanting and uh you know swearing at them and chanting fake news and things like that so 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 this is not new um, what I think is new is just how widespread it has become. And I think, you know, you and in fairness, you and I are not in the media bubbles that these people are in. I, I'm sure we're in our own media bubbles to some degree, um, but, but we don't come across this very often. Um, and I think the I think a lot of people, reporters, you know, people that just don't don't subscribe to this at all, just sort of writes it off as you know, these people are lunatics or they're crazy or they're just Trumpers or, you know, in some way kind of dismissing them. And I think that's a mistake. Um, you know, in watching that video, it was very disheartening to hear what they were saying, especially because, you know, I did want to be a journalist throughout my you know, whole life, basically, and, and, and was one for many years. So it's hard to hear that kind of anger towards the profession. But it's also not entirely unwarranted. Um, and I know I'm going to get a ton of hate mail or, or social media messages on this. I'm not saying they are right. I'm absolutely not saying they are right. I don't think their level of anger justifies the issue to any degree whatsoever. Um, but I do think there are issues sort of in media coverage uh, in the United States. And I think of politics and of the campaign. And I think it's not, it's not, a, it's not a, a left-right issue so much as... The fact that the the media is, I mean, the news media is a, is a profit business. It's a for profit business in the United States, and as a result, um, you know, you're going to go with the 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 crazier the behavior, the better. And you know, to to 
to a big degree, the, the, the media in the U.S. is responsible for Donald Trump being elected in the first place. And I remember in his first year, he said that, that you know, if he if he was impeached or if he was if he lost the next election, the media would be the most upset about that. And actually, I think to some degree, he's absolutely right. And so I guess I think it's time for the, the news media to sort of take a much more honest look at themselves, at the at the organization of of sort of the media hierarchy in the United States and sort of, you know, how the, how the industry functions, how we determine what goes on television, what goes on radio, you know, because this has always been human decisions. And so, you know, the coverage is dictated by a human being who thinks that story is newsworthy and thinks it should get coverage. Um, and we know that if you have, for instance, a, a newsroom that is predominantly of one race or of one socioeconomic background, it's going to focus on issues that relate to their own background or their own concerns. And, um, you know, I, I think we're at a point now where we have, you know, the, the, the sort of right wing media with, with Fox news and Rush Limbaugh in sort of a mainstream role. But then we've got, you know, the Alex Joneses of the world and the, you know, the crazy, crazy right wing side. Um, and you know, I, I, I don't even pretend to say that they are legitimate fair media, but at the same time, you know, I do read the New York Times almost every day. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Atlantic, um, you know, certain publications like this. And it's not hard to understand why Trump supporters would be angry either, because it does look, you know, that the New York Times has a very strong opinion of this. And they say it sticks to the, uh, you know, the op-ed page, but it doesn't. It's very apparent elsewhere in the newspaper. Um, CNN uh, ran a, a speech uh, of Donald Trump a couple of weeks ago, and they had the fact checkers posting, you know, real data at the bottom of the screen as Donald Trump was speaking. And I mean, I, I can see if you were to bring this issue to journalists, they would say, this is excellent. We're fact checking him in real time and we're posting the real information on the screen. But if you love Donald Trump, this is outrageous. This has never been done for any other candidate. Um, and it's clear signaling from CNN to the to sort of like-minded people as well who, who, you know, who dislike Trump. And I don't think any fact-checking or any sort of, of the, anything like that is going to change anyone's mind on either side. Uh, and so I think the problem is much bigger than that. And I think oftentimes um, it gets overlooked. And I think, you know, the media is in a, in a, in a big problem um, in a, in a PR, from a PR perspective. Well, you know, you talked about honesty and, 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 being honest and, and also news as, as entertainment. And I think, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the entertainment versus the facts that's, that is sort of, that's sort of where the schism occurs, right? Are you in the business of providing factual information or are you in the business of providing entertainment? I think where <clears throat> things get more complicated is where there's a clear blurring of those of those two lines. I mean, now you, you said, Cam, that, you know, you read the New York times every day. You like to read the Atlantic. I mean, do you, do you like to read those publications because you feel that you're being given an honest perspective on the issues? I mean, we know, I mean, it goes without saying that both of those publications would have a perceived quote unquote liberal slant. Um, I mean, so why, why do you choose those publications say over, uh, over a, a Breitbart or a, a Fox news, for example. Okay. Um, that's a good question. And, um, and I think everyone should think about their media diet to, to be honest, because, um, 
you know, all, all one organization is, is just not, not good in this day and age. So the New York times, actually, I check largely because they often have, you know, very good columnists and or features and they have very good coverage of Hong Kong. So, I mean, that from that perspective, you know, I'm quite interested in, in, in what they're doing, but they also, to some degree, even now, uh, set the news agenda in the United States. And so, uh, you know, it's worth checking for that reason. But in terms of like straight up news coverage, I don't think I'd put New York Times in like the top five because I do find the the bias in the in the New York Times becoming much worse. Um, and, and I notice it and I know other people notice it as well. And even if I agree with it, I don't want to read it when I'm trying to get the news straight up. Um, the Atlantic, the Atlantic is a bit more featured, a feature based. Um, and I find that it does go into some detail on some issues or perspectives that are not covered elsewhere. I think the the magazine has actually you know, and its digital transformation has become an, just an excellent source of information. I think they do a very, very good job. Um, so I'm, I'm quite high on them at the moment. But for straight news, the other organization, this might surprise you, um, is Bloomberg. And it's obviously business focused and they do have a paywall. Uh, but Bloomberg does cover news as well. And they cover campaigns and they cover, you know, all of the other things that are going on. And I find that they are also quite good at just providing the facts and, um, and, and, and leaving the interpretation up to the reader. I think the Financial Times out of London is another one that does that well. So if I'm looking for straight up news coverage, this is where I would go uh, to see what's happening. And, you know, refer to the New York Times just for the news agenda of the day, sort of what the, what the intelligentsia is thinking about things. Uh, and, and so there's different purposes that I go to these, these different areas. But I think regardless of which news outlets you get your news from, it is important to think skeptically about everything that you read, especially if you're reading something that you agree with. Um, you know, and I, I don't think, I think sort of media studies or, you know, skeptical reading slash thinking is, is a skill that should be taught, uh, you know, a lot because oftentimes I think it's the older people that have a harder time with it. I, I've seen this with my own parents, you know, they, they, they get a link on Facebook that's from, you know, Hillary Clinton but it looks like a legitimate news article and they click it and it's filled with, you know, crazy accusations, but it looks legit and they don't look at the URL necessarily. And they share that on and other people click it because I do think they're from an era where, yeah, if something's written, if it's published, then it must be factual or it must have some sort of value um, and aren't aware sort of how Facebook works and how the algorithms work and how you can put 20 bucks into that. Into, into Facebook and they can get it in front of a hundred thousand people. Um, so I, I actually think that the bigger problem was with the older, older people rather than the younger people. Well, okay. And you, you, you raise, you raise a really good point there. I mean, cause let's, let's be honest. I mean, we can, we can talk about how the majority of individuals out there should be diversifying their, their media diet each and every day. The reality is, is that most people aren't and that most people continue to, um, to source their media through their Facebook feed. So if, if we can safely assume, and I think we can, that going forward, the vast majority of people are going to continue to do that, you know, from a, at least from a, a PR perspective or being a little more critical, you know, what, what sort of advice can you, would you give people, Cam, as they're just sort of, you know, cycling through that Facebook feed of their friends, referring them to, stories with a, a particular political slant that they probably already subscribe to. You know, my, my, my advice is not to get news from Facebook period. I think, um, there is a lot of stuff being shared on there and I think there's some good stuff being shared on there too, but in general, I don't think it's a good place to get your news from. 
um, because it is not ver- a lot of it's not verified. A lot of it's good, a lot of it's not, but it's not clear which is which. And and you're also subject to you know who's sharing information. So um, you know if it's your neighbor or your uncle or some friend you know from high school sharing content, it's something that they find valuable and they've put on onto Facebook. But I really think it behooves us all to go out and see what's important sort of ourselves. And that sounds like a big task, like we have to sort of go and do our own investigating. I don't think that's true. I think, you know, one or two outlets that you can take a look at just to get a sense of of different sides is really helpful. And then narrow down to quality publications. For instance, I think, you know, The Atlantic, like I mentioned, is a a really good and reliable place to go, um, you know, for news. And I think another one, believe it or not, is Drudge Report. And I've mentioned this to a couple of people who have actually thanked me for it a couple of times, uh, only because if you pull up Drudge Report, it's it's a very sort of 1997 GeoCities kind of layout on there. It's very plain, um, but you instantly get a look at what the right is thinking or what some of the issues are that are being covered in other communities or from other points of view. And oftentimes it's quite uh, eye-opening. Um, you know, you can go through there and go, oh, yeah, actually, this does make sense. Or why wasn't this covered? Um, and I guess the main thing is not to fall into one camp or the other, but just look at everything with that kind of skepticism uh, and get get a get a variety of content in front of yourself as much as you can. And Drudge Report, you know, like it's fast. If you're even if you've only got five minutes to check news, open Drudge, you can skim the headlines. I'm sure there's going to be something in there that looks interesting to you. Uh, but when that's done, just go back to whatever it is else you do. It just provides that little bit of balance. So, what I mean, what would you suggest then in terms of, you know, if you're dealing with an individual, you know, let's say they 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 love Donald Trump, their 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 daily appetite of um of media is sort of satiated with with Breitbart and Fox News and 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 little if anything else if if you're a media outlet and you're trying to tap in to those individuals to sort of give them the other side what do you think is the most effective means of doing that without it simply being reduced to well that's fake news and I'm just going to ignore it I wish I could answer this question because, you know, I, you know, both of my parents are very, very pro Trump, for instance. And I think, and you heard in that clip, uh, you know, how people feel about, um, you know, non-right-wing media (laughs) showing up. And I think, you know, one of the most dangerous things I think that, 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 that Trump has been able to do, but not just Trump. I mean, this existed before he was around as well. Um, is really just discredit everything that the mainstream media does. And I think that is unfortunate because you can, if you if you ask someone to take a look at an article from somewhere else, um, they start off by not believing anything that's said anyway. And actually, I think this is a bigger problem. I mean, we're opening a bit of a can of worms here because there was also a study that was mentioned on the Ezra Klein show not long ago that said people do sometimes read an opposing point of view, but as they read it, they're thinking about each line and each fact and discrediting it in their own way. So they read it hypercritically if they see it as something that opposes their sort of perceived wisdom or their point of view. And so I think that's, uh, that's another big challenge um, that we're dealing with. I don't know how this is going to work. Lastly, you and the other big issue on the right, I think is just a real discrediting of any kind of um, authority or establishment or of sort of knowledge or intelligence or, you know, those kinds of things, you know, there's a lot of anger at Dr. Fauci, for instance, for, for, uh, you know, wanting more, more 
or the lockdown to extend for medical reasons. I mean, there's a lot of people who just don't believe people in those positions anymore. And I think that's also a really big problem. I, I don't know how that came about. And I really don't know how we're going to get out of that, out of that problem. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I mean, that's when you're sort of mixing your politics with, with health and, and well-being, then yeah, things really get problematic. I mean, I, th- I think I saw a clip um, last night uh, about w- with, with Eric Trump talking about and you know, effectively suggesting that the extension of the lockdown is, you know, really an elaborate liberal ploy to to try and compromise Donald Trump's reelection campaign. You know, and, and again, it's not the first time we've heard that, but I think, you know, we can talk about different political arguments, but when we're then talking about the health consequences of those political arguments, that's when things can can really start to get precarious. And I I I I see that as as very very troubling and I'm I'm concerned as to, you know, again, how do we get real scientific evidence um in a sort of digestible um medium for people to to come to some sort of reasonable conclusion about the science and i think you know you've you've talked about this before as well that the media is also to blame for that that the media um was was sort of flip-flopping on coronavirus and of course we've seen headlines where they're flip-flopping where you know it's it, it's not as bad as we thought it was it's way worse than we thought it was um and again that's 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 a further consequence as you talked about of well when we're talking about providing information in a pro, in a, in a for-profit environment um how can we really trust the validity of of anything we're reading regardless of your your political stripe or where you fall on the spectrum yeah, I'm going to add into the show notes uh, an episode of the Ezra Klein show that that really deals with this exact issue. And the fact that, you know, in January, there were stories talking about how COVID-19 probably wasn't going to be a big deal and you had a bigger chance of being struck by lightning and, you know, these sorts of things. But even back then, um, there was a possibility that it could become a big deal. But if you write a story with a headline about some sort of probability, you know, People don't want to read that. It's not exciting. Uh, they want to know yes or no. They want to know, is it a problem or not? And that's it. And and when you make a declarative statement, that attracts people to it. Um, you know, nuance, as we know, and as John Kerry found out in his campaign, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. People, they're not interested in nuance. And this goes to an even bigger problem, perhaps even, which is just the education system. Because I don't know, you know, we talk about sort of thinking, how to think, and how to balance different uh, objectives or different points of view and being skeptical of what you read and what you hear. Um, I mean, all of that, those are all skills that I think a democracy in particular needs uh, in order to function properly. Because if we lose that, uh, you know, then we're not making decisions based on things that are real or things that are factual. And, you know, when we're seeing this now, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's some really big and long lasting consequences from that. Yeah. 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 You're, you're right. We're, we're, we're in a world of trouble. Yeah, we are. And this is actually a really interesting topic. I'd like to get somebody on the show to talk about this too, because, um, you know, the way the news media is working, it does have a lot of similarities or ties in rather with, with PR because they are so closely linked. And actually there was another thing I wanted to talk about on this show, but I think we've, um, we've run out of time. So I'm going to go into this, um, recommended bit. And I, I know I mentioned the Ezra Klein show, which I'll add to the show notes. Um, but there was another story and we were talking about the Atlantic and this is where this story appeared. 
Um, it's about this. It opens with this woman who had COVID-19 and was in the ICU and she was given a ventilator. And as it opens, she talks about while they were working on her, she woke up and she saw the nurse using a saw to cut off one of her limbs and she was horrified. And then she put her hand on her head and found that she was missing half of her skull. And she was extremely panicked. It turns out this was delirium. This was a hallucination that she had. And actually it's common and it's a huge problem. It's called acute respiratory distress syndrome. And the article in the Atlantic is called COVID-19 is a delirium factory. And now apparently uh, when, when, especially with a ventilator, when you're put under a general anesthetic, there are some crazy things that happen in your mind. And 80% of patients who require a ventilator suffer from this. And it's still relatively new. And the doctors are trying to figure out, are there ways for this not to happen? Because I guess people have come out of the ICU and they've, they have PTSD. They've got trauma from these hallucinate hallucinations that they've had uh, while they were in the ICU. Uh, so it's known as ICU delirium. And um, I mean, if you didn't care about COVID-19 before, uh, I mean, this almost makes it worse. This is almost worse than having the actual disease. Uh, and it was, uh, it was an article that really sort of stuck with me when I was going through it. Wow, that sounds terrible. I'll have to read that as well. I wasn't, I'm, I'm not familiar with the story. Yeah, no problem. I will put it in the show notes. You can, uh, you can check it out. Um, anything you want to add, Ewan, before we wrap this up? We have another long one. We try to keep it within an hour, but it keeps going and keeps going longer. Uh, well, I, only in terms of a recommendation, and I came to this one late, but um, I, I've finally been bombing through the uh, Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill podcast, and uh, it's, it's fascinating. And uh, if, if for any of our listeners, if they haven't had a chance to check it out, I would highly highly recommend it and um, perhaps i can talk a little bit about it next week but a really really fascinating listen you know i heard ronan farrow on uh, a couple of i think he was on his recline he was also on uh, fresh air with terry gross i've heard him speak at length about his investigation and i bought his book actually uh catch and kill i haven't read it yet um and i saw his podcast but i actually didn't download it because i've heard him go through the story in so much detail a couple of times already, but you think it's still, still worthwhile. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, I have a copy of the book as well. I've, I've, I've started, started reading it. Um, but I'm, I'm obviously much further along in the podcast. And what's interesting is it, it gives a lot of sort of background context, um, that resulted in the content that's actually in the book. So I, I think it's, it is quite complimentary. Um, but just, I mean, just sort of jaw dropping, jaw-dropping moments in uh in the show in terms of his investigation around harvey weinstein um and the lengths that harvey weinstein <laughs> went um mm -hmm. to protect himself and the connections it um yeah it's 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 truly a, a fascinating fascinating listen and i think even if you have read the new yorker piece if you have read the book um i think it's still very much worth worth your time because of course he interviews um multiple parties in, that are involved in the in the story itself it's a, a great listen 
Yeah. Well, and, and him telling this story, I mean, there's so much that was going on behind the scenes as he was doing this investigation. Uh, and it does make Harvey Weinstein to seem like a very genuinely scary human being. Um, oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Just, um, just, yeah, just terrifying. But the, just the length. Sexual way. I mean, obviously uh, he's a rapist, but aside from that, just the way he intimidates and the way he tracks people down and uh, like all of these things, it's just, um, he's a guy you just would never want to cross. Yeah. Well, and I, I think, you know, as an employment lawyer, I found it fascinating. Um, particularly there's an episode where, um, it's an interview with Harvey's assistant, one of his assistants for, for years at Miramax. And she talks about this workplace culture that was sort of, you know, it, it was explained to her in her initial job in, interview of these are the things that are going to happen. Harvey's going to flip his lid and he's going to yell and scream at you. He's going to ask you to give him a massage. Um, he's going to ask to give you a massage. There are going to be moments where he's going to ask you to dictate things while he's walking around virtually naked. This is all commonplace and is going to happen. And, you know, everybody sort of talks about workplace cultures being being you know such as such as Weinstein's is well that's ridiculous how could you ever how could you ever work in an environment like that but the reality is is that lots of people do and that when you're in that bubble that bubble of a workplace you're not particularly conscious of whether or not this is normal you may know it deep down that hey something isn't right about this but when you look around and you see your colleagues being part of it and not you know, seeing it as, as being largely normal, you start to perceive it as largely normal as well. It's really only after the fact when you're sort of removed from that bubble, much like an abusive relationship that you, you're in a position to sort of recognize and conclude, my gosh, that, that really was not normal at all. That was a truly messed up environment. And the fact that this employer has been able to act out in these predatorial ways for so long, unchecked, um, is truly disturbing and that I was somehow part of that, arguably even complicit in it. It's really not until after the fact that a lot of employees can kind of come to their senses and have that perspective to recognize the the, the problem in this situation for what it ultimately was. And this reminds me of, I didn't have this down on my recommended list, but there's actually a podcast on Jeffrey Epstein as well. And um, it's interesting because what you're talking about is very similar to things Jeffrey Epstein did as well. Um, you know, in terms of just the things that were, you know, quote unquote, normal, um, around him, uh, which are not normal at all. And it's also a fascinating listen. So, um, I mean, these subjects, you, and this is like the third subject we talked about today that we could go into in great detail, but we're just sort of glancing over, uh, in the interest of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure I'll come back to this one as I kind of make my way through it, because again, from a, from a legal perspective, there's just been all sorts of things that have sort of piqued my interest about it. Cool. All right. I can hear your daughter in the background. That's our, that's our signal that we've gone way too long. Um, okay. So, uh, just before we wrap up, please, uh, if you enjoyed the show this week, uh, let us know if you didn't enjoy it. Um, you don't have to let us know. Um, but tell a friend. Oh no, let us know. Let us know. We want to know. We, (laughs) we want to know that we want to know that too. Uh, and you can follow us on social media. That's where you can let us know on uh, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, and the account is PRLawPod, P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. And we're also on YouTube. We don't have a fancy URL there, though. So you'll have to go to YouTube and give us a search, PR and Law Podcast. So that's it. 
for episode six. There's all kinds of stuff going on in the world. So we're going to have uh, lots again next week. Again, if you have any questions for us, social media, hashtag PRLawPod, hashtag PRLawPod. For you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. 